0: Strangers, ritual is back to remind you that sometimes you really shouldn't listen to your gut. Like when it's telling you to marry that person you just met at the craps table at an off strip Vegas casino with sticky floors. Or that you'd look great with a face tattoo. Or to unblock your ex on socials. But when your gut is telling you it needs some support, when you're suffering with occasional bloating, gas, or diarrhea, and your gut is like, ugh, help me, it's... Time to listen and give your gut the support it needs with Symbiotic Plus and Ritual. Ritual's daily pre, pro, and postbiotic, with two of the world's most studied probiotic strains, helps support a healthy gut barrier and microbiome to aid in digestion and cut down on uncomfortable and embarrassing tummy issues. Listen, a lot of you are going back into the office. It was okay to stink up your apartment with your farts, but something tells me your co-workers won't appreciate working in a Dutch oven. The little minty pill doesn't need to be refrigerated. You can keep it on your desk or nightstand so you won't forget to take it. Plus, it's a time-delayed release capsule so it survives the harsh conditions of your upper GI tract to deliver the goods right where you need it. Your gut! Treat your gut well, so when it tells you to do something like accuse your neighbor's kid of witchcraft, you can tell it to simmer down and focus on its own thing. You can make bad decisions without your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. It's time to listen to your gut. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com strange to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. What is it that causes mass hysteria? What would make a group of people turn on each other, causing so much suspicion and chaos that innocent people die because of it? When things seem inexplicable, why do we suspect the people around us? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has been known to light a candle or seek the advice of tarot cards, even while outwardly proclaiming, none of this is real. This week, the Salem Witch Trials. The frenzy to find the culprit of whatever dissatisfaction the people of Salem might have been experiencing from one day to the next. One example, among many, of when our fear of the unknown drove us to unspeakable acts against our neighbors. There's no way around it. Life in colonial America was rough. What with the lack of indoor plumbing, starvation, and chattel slavery. Not to mention the hostile natives, who probably would have been less hostile if the colonizers hadn't, you know, been colonizing. Among the Puritans, no one had it worse than women and girls. For a group who claimed to flee their homeland for religious freedom, they sure were strict when it came to religion. And if you had the misfortune of being born with a vagina in Puritan America, your destiny was preset. You were going to be a wife and a mother and fear the ever-loving shit out of God. If you didn't, boy oh boy were you in for it. Women were expected to have and raise as many God-fearing children as their bodies could handle or literally die trying. Tend to their homes and husbands and spend their free time looking at their shoes. No joke, women were expected to look down when not engaged otherwise. Not that they had any free time. When they weren't pumping out children at the risk of their own lives, they were farming, helping their husbands keep their books, cooking, cleaning, making clothes, trying to keep their kids from dying in myriad ways— Fearing God and antagonizing their household help, who was usually either an enslaved native or African, a white widow or a white child who had been taken from their unwed mother and put into indentured servitude as punishment for their mothers fornicating outside of wedlock. If you were a single woman, for any reason, or childless, or happened to be poor or homeless, God help you if you didn't keep your eyes locked on your own shoes. Because women were the descendants of Eve, who was the original woman to make everything harder for men, they were considered to be particularly vulnerable to temptation. If a woman expressed an interest in material possessions or, heaven forbid, wanting to achieve orgasm during sex, or at the very least expecting to be asked for any kind of consent, let alone enthusiastic from her husband, she was most definitely in cahoots with the devil. Listen, I don't know what kind of God makes consensual sex feel so awesome and then tells you if you want to have it, you're evil, but that God needs a timeout. Anyway... Being a Puritan woman, by all accounts, sucked. The only thing worse for a white woman in Puritan America was to be anything other than a Puritan. In the early 1690s, one of the most popular books going around New England, other than the Bible, of course, was Memorable Providences by the infamous, dare I say fanatic, Puritan Reverend Cotton Mather. Mather claimed to have investigated a case of four children in one family in Boston who became suddenly ill in 1688. Four children of a mason named John Goodwin claimed to suffer horrible pains, which made them cry out together in chorus. On one occasion, the children supposedly flew like geese through the air. According to a piece in The New Yorker, Mather claimed the children, quote, recoiled from blows of invisible sticks, shrieked that they were sliced by knives or wrapped in chains, jaws, wrists, necks flew out of joint, parental reproof sent the children into agonies, chores defied them. The children were particularly disruptive during sermons and while they were supposed to be praying or reading the Bible, which, as a reminder, was basically all the time. Mather concluded that the children's maladies had been caused by their maid, goodwife Goody Anne Glover, who was no doubt a witch. She was after all Catholic. Goodwife, for those of you who don't know, was the polite name given to wives of the time. It didn't seem like you really needed to prove yourself a good wife to be addressed as such. If you had a husband and kept house, you were called goodwife so and so. The polite term for a married man was good man, because, as we all know, women become wives when they marry, while men remain men. Goodwife Anne Glover, the Goodwin's maid, apparently a lot of things were good to the Puritans, was an Irish widow who had come to Boston from Barbados, where she and her late husband had been deported from Ireland. After her husband's death, Glover moved to Boston, where she got a job as a housekeeper and nanny for the Goodwin family. In the summer of 1688, four of the five Goodwin children became ill, leading their doctor to officially proclaim, quote, nothing but a hellish witchcraft could be the origin of these maladies. The Goodwin's eldest child, Martha, apparently was like, oh yeah, come to think of it, I did get sick after an argument I had with Goody Glover. By argument, she probably meant she backhanded Glover for not making the gruel right. Right. Goody Glover was put on trial for witchcraft, with no evidence, because there wasn't any. During her trial, Cotton Mather called her a scandalous old Irish woman, very poor, a Roman Catholic, and obstinate in idolatry. I'm not sure what was scandalous about Goody Glover, aside from the fact that she was Irish, Catholic, and poor. And, as we all know, the poor are, by default, scandalous and suspicious. For some reason, Glover chose to only speak in Gaelic during her trial, even though she could speak and understand English. I'm guessing she was like, you know what? I'm tired. You people clearly have some kind of bug up your butts about my poor Irish Catholic ass, so I'm going to lean into it. And she was hanged. Around the time that Cotton Mather's book with this account in it was being feverishly devoured by the good good wives and good men of good old New England, refugees of the English War with France that was taking place in the English colonies in America were flooding into Salem Village in Massachusetts, which was already facing a serious shortage of food and other basic resources. There were also two families fighting for power in Salem, the Putnams and the Porters, which is amazing considering how shitty living conditions were at the time. Like, you really want to be in charge of that shitstorm? Okay. I guess it's like buying a money pit, and instead of cutting your losses and walking away, you double down and just keep sinking more money into it? On top of the scarce resources, warring factions, and literal war refugees— there was a controversial Puritan reverend named Samuel Paris drumming up trouble. Some people disliked Paris so much they voted against a tax to support his wages and to pay for firewood for himself and his family over the winter. To be fair, people tend to vote against taxes no matter what they might be used for, whether it's health care, education, or paying the local outspoken reverend. Anyway, in response to not getting paid and possibly freezing to death, Reverend Paris was like, "'The devil is in Salem, people.'" And whether or not people believed him per se, a charismatic reverend screaming and yelling about the devil taking over their village just added to the already super tense situation in Salem. Also, as far as the Puritans were concerned, anything and everything could be attributed to either God or the devil. So considering how awful things were in Salem, it's not hard to imagine that people were like, yeah, the devil is definitely here. In the midst of a colder-than-normal January in 1692, with tensions in Salem Village higher than Seth Rogen in a just-barely-amusing movie about being high, neighbors began to accuse Reverend Parris' 9-year-old daughter Betty and his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams of acting really weird. They were diving under furniture, barking like dogs, complaining of invisible injuries, interrupting sermons and falling into trances— It would be easy enough to write this off as people trying to get back at their pastor who they didn't like, but it does seem like the accusations were at least based in truth. Something was definitely wrong with Betty and Abigail. Oddly enough, Betty and Abigail's behavior was very similar to the alleged behavior of the Goodwin children laid out in Cotton Mather's book, Memorable Providences, which just happened to be a very, very well-read book in the Paris household. Reverend Paris and his wife invited people over to pray for the afflicted girls, during which the girls continued to bark and contort and just be generally annoying. So much so that Reverend Paris was eventually like, fucketh this shit, and called a doctor. The doctor was really not much help. He basically was like, uh, this is some evil shit. And of course, the village ran with that professional assessment, and before anyone could say evil is not a proper medical diagnosis, everyone was running around claiming the devil really was in Salem. It wasn't long before a bunch of other children and teenagers in Salem Village began to exhibit bizarre behavior. But surely these innocent, God-fearing girls weren't in league with the devil, right? There had to be some conduit, some ungodly person knowingly consorting with the devil. And wouldn't you know it, suddenly a lot of women in Salem were real cozy with the devil. What was Salem to do with all these devil canoodlers? Why, put them on trial, of course. Give the accused a fair trial before a jury of their peers with their own counsel where evidence would be fairly and objectively weighed. (laughs) Just kidding. There were trials, of course, but as you're about to find out, not a thing about them was fair and objective. Strangers, I just signed up with CoPilot and I'm so excited to get started. CoPilot is a one-on-one remote personal training app that's actually affordable and pairs you with a personal trainer based on your goals and needs. I'm not a big fan of going to the gym and unfortunately, that has turned into a bad habit of not exercising. My co-pilot coach Jody, and I are building a fitness plan that's tailored exactly to what I'm looking for. I can work out on my own schedule without the hassles of the gym. No offense, gyms. It's not you. It's the people in you. But if you like going to the gym, your co-pilot coach can help you design a program with everything your gym has to offer. So whether you have a yoga mat, a couple of five-pound weights, and your dog Jasper insisting on doing poses with you, a well-equipped home gym, or you go to a local fitness center, your co-pilot coach will help you build the best program for you. Plus, if you find your coach is not the best fit for you, you can switch coaches anytime. No worries. My co-pilot coach, Jody keeps me accountable, and I can reach her via text Video or images, and I can always schedule a call if I have questions or need extra support. Plus, if you have an Apple Watch, your co pilot coach can track your progress through that as well. I'd love for you to follow my lead and get fit and feel fabulous. Give Co pilot a try and find out why it was listed by Forbes as the top rated personal trainer app of 2023. Head to go.mycopilot.com slash strange to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. That's go.mycopilot.com slash strange to get a free 14-day trial with your very own personal trainer. Take a back seat and let Copilot help you reach your fitness goals. The first person to be accused of and confessed to being a witch was Reverend Paris' slave from the Caribbean, Tichuba. Desperate, I'm sure, to find a reason for the weird behavior of his daughter and niece, he pressured the girls into naming names. Tituba was one of the first women they accused. She denied it until Reverend Paris literally beat a confession out of her. Once she confessed, Tituba was thrown in jail to await her day in court. The first person to get their day in court for witchcraft was a widow named Bridget Bishop. Bridget was no stranger to the court, having been accused in 1679 by the children of her second husband of killing him by bewitching him. She was found not guilty at that trial. But in 1692, Bishop once again found herself on trial for witchcraft. This time, her accusers were none other than Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, who, after naming Tituba and two other unfortunate women, figured, why stop there and started throwing around accusations left and right. Unfortunately, Bishop's neighbors came out against her as well, accusing of killing children, being able to transform herself into a cat, and bewitching animals. She was subjected to an examination of her body, which supposedly found nipples on her perineum. In other words, people said she had taint teats. Deliverance Hobbs and Mary Warren, two other women also suspected of witchcraft, testified against Bishop. Hobbs and Warren themselves had admitted to being witches, though it's pretty clear they only did that after being, quote, pressured, which is a polite way of saying tortured. It's more than likely they only came out against Bishop because of said pressure as well. Bishop, despite maintaining her innocence throughout, was hanged on June 10, 1692. She was the first victim of the growing mania around witchcraft in Salem. And even though Bishop was only the first, there were already people—few though they were—who were like, "Uh, this is a mess." One of the judges on Bridget's trial, Nathaniel Saltonstall, resigned from the court immediately following Bishop's sentencing, citing displeasure with the incredibly loosey-goosey way Bishop's trial had been conducted. Saltonstall, though, was a tiny voice drowned out by a growing chorus of accusations flying all over Salem in every which way. Anyone with a grudge or a gripe with anyone else need only cry, which? And the accused was carted away to jail. It didn't take long, though, for the accused people to figure out that their best hope for avoiding the gallows was actually to admit to whatever they were being accused of. It became clear pretty quickly that the people suffering the worst punishment were the ones who refused to confess. Those people were hanged, or worse, after a brief trial consisting of a lot of finger-pointing and zero proof. The ones who confessed, however, sat in prison, which wasn't a picnic, but certainly beat swinging from a noose in the town square. The thing about confessing to being a witch in Puritan New England, though, is that while it may have gotten you out of being put to death, you face the real problem of living out the rest of your life with your entire community believing you were a witch. Remember when the church committee voted to not pay Reverend Paris or make it so he had firewood over the unforgiving winter? It would be like that, but with everything. No one would want to do business with you. No one would give you food. Your house would likely be burned down. It was not good. It was probably with that in mind that Rebecca Nurse chose to maintain her innocence when she was accused of being a witch. Her accusers were two young girls, Ann Putnam Jr. and Abigail Williams, again, who claimed that Nurse attacked them in March. Ann's mother, Ann Putnam Sr., then joined the girls by claiming that Nurse demanded she sign the devil's book. But the biggest piece of evidence against Rebecca Nurse was that her neighbor, Benjamin Holton, died shortly after Nurse had lectured him about letting his pigs root around in her garden. Remarkably, though, Nurse was found not guilty. But Chief Judge William Stoughton was not having that verdict. He told the jury to go back and look again at the incriminating statement nurse had supposedly made about herself. Reading through the actual statements from the trial is an exercise. Ye oldy English might as well be another language. But it looks like the statement nurse made that sealed her fate was this, quote, "'What do these people give in evidence against me now?' They used to come against us. I have no idea what that means. And before all you oldie English scholars come for me on Twitter about not doing my research, just don't. I do plenty of research. Also, this isn't a peer-reviewed journal. It's a podcast. Nurse was apparently very hard of hearing, so it's also likely that any statement she gave in court was in response to something she had misheard. The judge is like, what say you, goody nurse, to the accusation that ye art a witch? And she was like, what's that? A bitch? I mean, sure, if you let your pigs trample through my garden and eat my vegetables, I'm going to have some words for you. You want to call me a bitch because of it? That's your business. And the judge was like, well, that's confession enough for me. The vast majority of people tried for witchcraft were women. And of those, they were mostly old because, as we all know, once a woman is no longer capable of making babies, she's got to do something with her time. Why not become a witch? But there were a handful of men tried for witchcraft, one of whom was ex-minister George Burroughs, who many believed was the ringleader of the witches plaguing Salem. Anne Putnam accused Burroughs of bewitching American soldiers in 1688 and 89, leading to their loss in a battle against the local Wabanakis. Some believe that this was the first in a string of losses against local tribes due to an alliance they believed the locals had with the devil— because Lord knows the colonizers' losses in local battles with people who were familiar with the terrain and were likely better fed and in better health generally couldn't be attributed to literally anything other than a pact with the devil. Salem Witch Trial darlings Betty Paris and Abigail Williams once again came forward with accusations. One wonders with how often Betty and Abigail claimed to have had run-ins with witches, they even survived that long but there they were at George Burroughs' trial claiming he choked them and bragged that he outranked a wizard. He was in Salem, the girls said, to persuade people to give their souls to the devil. At Burroughs' trial, the girls put on quite a show, falling into trances mid-testimony, crying out in pain, claiming that Burroughs had bitten them. They showed the bite marks to the court, who compared them to Burroughs' mouth and declared them to be a match. Needless to say, even today, with advances in technology, bite mark evidence is questionable. But in 1692, someone could glance at someone's mouth and be like, yep, those are no doubt the teeth that made those bite marks. And everyone else was like, case closed! Those girls were definitely biting each other. But imagine if George Burroughs had tried to claim the girls were just biting each other and trying to pass the blame on to him. He had no proof. I mean, sure, neither did literally anyone in this whole circus. But the court had already put six people to death. What would happen if they turned around at that point and been like, wait, maybe these girls are making this shit up? In fact, Burroughs' main argument for his innocence was that witches didn't exist, and that was probably his undoing. Because again, if witches didn't exist, how could the court justify putting six innocent people to death and holding hundreds more in dungeons? That would be a really bad look. On his way to the gallows, Burroughs recited the Lord's Prayer, which everyone knows a wizard should not be able to do, And the crowd gathered to watch the hanging, honestly, the things people do for entertainment, was like, wait, maybe we shouldn't hang him? But they did anyway. And when the crowd was still like, I don't know, our good friend Cotton Mather stood in front of them and was like, what better way for the devil to ensnare us than to use a man of God against us? So, claiming your innocence was not a great option what with the whole getting executed anyway part of it, and confessing left you alive but with a dark mark. The only other option was to not enter a plea at all. English law stated that by not entering a plea, a person couldn't be tried one way or the other, which seems like a no-brainer until you read a little further down in the law and learn that the punishment for refusing to make a plea was slow crushing under weights until you either entered a plea or died. When 81-year-old Giles Corey's wife, Martha, was accused of witchcraft in March of 1692, Giles apparently was like, well, I guess my wife is a witch. But when Giles himself was arrested a month later, having been accused by Abigail Hobbs of being a wizard, he was like, wait a minute. Giles Corey decided to not recognize the court or enter a plea, and so he was put into an open pit in a field next to the jail, stripped naked, except, I think, for his junk because penises are a sin, and with a board placed on his chest, he was made to endure the weight of huge rocks. After two days and being yelled at to enter a plea, Corey would just respond, more weight! The sheriff stood on top of the rocks, screaming at Corey to enter a plea. When Corey's tongue bulged out of his mouth because of the weight, the sheriff just shoved it back in with his cane. It's one thing to be dedicated to your job, but this guy just seems like a sadist. Corey died three days later on September 19, 1692. Supposedly his final words were, Damn you! I curse you and Salem! But it wasn't just old people who were being accused of witchcraft. No, children were at risk too. Like, really little children. Strangers, Small's Cat Food is back with an awesome update. Smalls has partnered with the Humane Society and has donated over a million dollars worth of food to help cats in need. And now when you buy your kitties Smalls, you can help by donating directly at checkout. You can help buy treats, vaccines, or spaying or neutering. So not only will you be feeding your cats healthy, protein-packed meals with ingredients you might find in your own fridge, but you'll be helping other kitties all over the country get the care they need. I love it! After switching to small, 78% of cat owners report shinier, softer fur, and 90% report overall improvement in their cat's health. That's a big deal. Don't keep feeding your beloved kitties the burnt kibble filled with who knows what. There's all kinds of stuff in traditional cat food that your cats just don't need. With Smalls, they get everything they need and you get the peace of mind that you're giving your cat the best while helping other cats in need. What could be better? Is your cat food giving back to cats in need? Smalls is. So if you want to give Smalls a try and ditch kibble forever, head to smalls.com strange and use promo code strange at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code strange for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code STRANGE for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. Strangers, you know what I hate more than actually doing laundry? Putting the laundry away. I know that's technically part of doing laundry, but my folded clothes will sit on the laundry table or worse, on my bed for days. But now that I'm using laundry sauce detergent pods, scent boosters, and dryer sheets, honestly, putting my clothes away has become a sensory delight. The folks at Laundry Sauce partnered with one of the top fragrance houses in the world that designed some of your favorite designer scents. With laundry pods, scent boosters, dryer sheets and balls and fabric softener, you too can smell like luxury. And I usually don't even like scented detergent, but with Laundry Sauce, now I feel very fancy when I put on my clean pajamas. And if you're someone who actually leaves your house, just think about the heads that will turn when you walk by smelling like Australian sandalwood and everyone thinks you're one of those people who just naturally smells good. But if you're anything like me, you'll be telling everyone you see about Laundry Sauce. Oh, that smell? Why, that's Egyptian rose from Laundry Sauce. But it's not just about smelling clean. We all know it has to be clean, too. The laundry pods from Laundry Sauce are high performance and get the job done, leaving your clothes not just fragrant, but clean and bright. And now you can smell just as good as me with my 15% discount on all Laundry Sauce products. Remember, when you smell your best, look your best, and feel your best, you're ready to take on the rest. So head to LaundrySauce.com strange and use promo code strange at checkout for 15% off. That's the best offer you'll find, but you must use my code strange for 15% off your order. One last time, that's LaundrySauce.com strange promo code strange for 15% off. Perhaps the worst story to come out of the Salem Witch Trials, although all the stories are horrific, is the one of Sarah Good and her four-year-old daughter, Dorothy. Once a fucking gen, it was Betty Parris and Abigail Williams who pointed the accusing fingers. These fucking girls. Sarah and her husband and child were homeless, which made her an obvious suspect. Though why on earth someone capable of witchcraft wouldn't just cast some kind of spell to increase their own riches or at least conjure up a house to live in is beyond me. Sarah was arrested on March 1st, but that apparently wasn't enough. On March 3rd, Ann Putnam was back at it, stating, quote, I saw the apparition of Dorothy Good, Sarah Good's daughter, who did immediately almost choke me and tortured me most grievously. And so she hath several times since tortured me by biting and pinching and almost choking me, tempting me also to write in her book, and also on the day of her examination, the apparition of Dorothy Good tortured me during the time of her examination and several times since." Dorothy, I should probably reiterate, was four years old. Regardless, she was arrested on March 24th, and of course, it didn't take long for her to break down and agree with whatever her accusers were trying to get her to confess to because she was four years old. Sarah Good gave birth while she was in prison. The baby died, and Sarah was hanged in June. I don't know how much of this poor little Dorothy was aware of, but she was finally released from prison and is said to have gone insane, which of course she did. I don't think there was any kind of like counseling offered to her, you know, I think they just opened the door to her cell and were like, oops, our bad. Hey, have a great life. By August of 1692, cooler heads began to prevail and be like, um, if this keeps going, what's to stop people from accusing us? By this point, there were hundreds of people in jail awaiting trial for being witches. The jails were, in fact, overflowing. And I'm pretty sure the powers that be started crunching some numbers and were like, it seems unlikely that this many people are witches. Even Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather, was like, Guys, I think we need to put the kibosh on this shit stat. That may be because his own wife was now accused, but whatever the reason, he urged the court to not allow spectral evidence in cases, meaning people couldn't be like, I saw a ghost or whatever. Governor William Phipps agreed and said that from then on out, the courts had to, quote, require proof of guilt by clear and convincing evidence. (laughs) What a concept! Phipps pardoned everyone who was sitting in prison awaiting trial for witchcraft, but 19 people had been hanged. One had been slowly crushed to death, and two dogs had been executed, having been found guilty of witchcraft. At least four others had died awaiting trial in prison. So what was it that caused the people of Salem to turn on each other? Was the devil really in Salem? Were some townspeople really witches and wizards? Were these girls actually sick with whatever it was that caused their weird symptoms? Were they making it all up? The most common theory about what caused the chaos in Salem in 1692 is plain old political tensions. With the village in such turmoil over resources, war, and inside politics, it was inevitable that people might pick sides and start accusing each other of unspeakable things, because that's what we tend to do as humans. Maybe Reverend Paris started it as a way to get back at the people for cutting his pay and not wanting to provide him with firewood. Maybe he convinced his daughter and niece to pretend to have weird symptoms. Maybe it all spun out of control from there. Now, I'm no historian, and I didn't read, like, whole books on this era in our history, but this theory seems odd to me, if only because the people initially accused of being witches weren't powerful people in society. It's not like political rivals were being targeted. For the most part, the people accused were older women, with arguably not much to do with whatever pissing contest was going on between competing factions in town. I certainly wouldn't put it past a bunch of teenage girls to put on a show of afflictions. Nor would I blame them, necessarily. Life in colonial America was hard, and girls had basically no opportunities in life. Why not stir things up and entertain yourselves by pretending to be bewitched? I'm sure sitting in a freezing church listening to someone drone on about the Bible was boring AF. Why not start barking and yelping? Hell, it beats staring at your shoes all day. My favorite theory, and the one I've decided to go with, is the moldy bread theory. Professor Dr. Linda R. Caporeal believes that fungus that grows on rye was causing ergotism, basically a form of food poisoning with symptoms, according to Caporeal, which include, quote, convulsing, choking, pricking, and even hallucinations. It's fair to say that our understanding of anatomy and human biology was limited, In the 1600s, doctors were still using mercury and lead to treat sick people. So it's understandable that something like moldy rye would never strike anyone as a likely culprit in a bizarre sickness that seemed to spread through the village, at least among some. Even without the mysterious ailments some of the Salem residents may have suffered, things were bad in New England at the turn of the 17th and 18th centuries. People were starving— War was an almost constant. Refugees wandered homeless and in need of resources that were already scarce. Add to that the political tension in Salem Village. Perhaps the people of Salem Village were at their tipping point. It seems like the stage was set for a group of bored and seriously repressed kids, possibly egged on by bitter parents, to cause a mass panic. And before you poo-poo the idea that an illness could be the catalyst of such major political and social upheaval, pitting neighbor against neighbor and exacerbating an already tenuous political climate, may I gently point out that we're living in exactly that scenario right now? Next time on Strange and Unexplained. In the early 20th century, lots of folks were running around claiming to be able to communicate with the dead. And one man was determined to expose the frauds. Along the way, psychical researcher Harry Price may have gotten more than he bargained for. For even more Strange and Unexplained, check us out on Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained, where you can get three bonus episodes per month for just five bucks. And for just another two dollars, you get all those plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. You can find us on socials at SNUPod and join our Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is The Jordan B. Peterson Podcast. See you next time.